Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome Spiro Pantazatos, who is an assistant professor of clinical neurobiology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And his story is really, really striking. Uh, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from what I understand, you started out, well, first of all, you have a very solid science background, completely mainstream, completely solid. And in 2020, you saw no reasons to doubt the official narrative at all. So you were actually kind of scared of the pandemic and mm -hmm. desiring to stay at home until the vaccines come out, at which point mm -hmm. you receive after the vaccine come out to, you know, mm -hmm. to leave. And then you looked at the data and the data told mm -hmm. you a different story. So that's my understanding. And I am very happy to be interviewing you today. And so if you want to, if you want to talk about yourself a little bit. Sure. No, thank you. That was a great uh, introduction. You captured all of the, the elements. Um, so yeah, in terms of just expanding my science background, I, I majored in integrated sciences program in under undergraduate. So that gave me a taste of uh, math, science, biology. Um, the idea of the program was to expose the students to all sorts of uh, disciplines. Um, and then in my graduate school, I also uh, had a range of uh, experience in, in bioinformatics, computational biology, neuroimaging, uh, neuroscience. So, so that sort of background uh, it can be encapsulated as a biomedical, I call myself a biomedical data scientist because that sort of uh, is generic enough to, to sort of encapsulate um, the type of um, science that I do. Um, so yeah, I was criticized actually for this paper uh, because I don't have an epidemiology, I don't have a specific epidemiology training, although I've taken courses in genetic epidemiology. Um, that was That was one of the criticisms indirectly that I heard from other people at my institution uh, when I shared the paper with people. Uh, so I actually shared it back in December. I shared it with the COVID task force. Um, and they, you know, they, yeah, go ahead. Uh, could you please uh, talk about the paper first? Because I know sure, what- Yeah, so this yeah, paper, right. yeah, the paper, um, so in, in, in starting in fall of 2021, um, well, late summer, uh, I started doing a lot of research um, into the vaccines, uh, the risk and the benefits. Um, and that was partly prompted by the mandate. So my university announced a mandate on April 19th. So, uh, of 2021. And I was, you know, a little hesitant. I was like, okay, this is, I got to do this research myself. And, you know, initially I thought, okay, you know, everything will be back to normal with the vaccine. And, and I was, uh, you know, thinking that that would be the, the solution. Um, but then the, when they, when they announced the mandate, that seemed a little off to me. Uh, something said, okay, there's, there's something wrong. If, if something works as intended and if it's safe and if it's effective and all of that, um, you don't need to mandate people to, to take it. So that was my first sort of uh, gut feeling that, okay, I need to look into this a little bit more and, and, uh, you know, September 1st was the deadline when they had the mandate for everyone. Um, so that's just to give a little bit of backstory um, into how I started the, or what prompted me to do the research. So the paper is really um, looking at publicly available data and it was from the CDC. Um, so I'll start with where I got the inspiration for it. It was a, my collaborator, uh, Hervé Seligman, 
um, had been publishing similar types of analyses using European data where he would take uh, mortality statistics across 20 or so European countries and then correlate them with, with the percent increases in vaccination rates. So you could get those two different sources and then correlate them to see is, is there a positive correlation or negative correlation between vaccination and mortality uh, across countries. So you, you have about 20 observations in this country, in this case, the EU, you have 20 countries and you can calculate a correlation coefficient between each country's uh, Z statistic for mortality, which, which is basically represents how for a particular week, it represents whether more or less people uh, died in a certain age group for that week. You're talking about all-cause yeah. mortality. Just All-cause mortality, exactly, yes, yes. So this is all-cause mortality. Uh, so so this is from the Euromomo, Euromomo data set. Um, and so he, he, was, he was doing those types of analyses and I saw some very interesting results where he found a positive correlation in the first five weeks of the injection. So there was, there was an adverse effect, apparently positive correlation between countries that had more increases in vaccination also tended to have higher mortality rates uh, for, for the first five weeks following the injection. And then it went down and then there appeared to be a negative correlation for about uh, three months, three, three to five months after that initial positive uh, correlation. So I wanted to um, I wanted to see if I could replicate those findings uh, using U.S. CDC data because uh, if I could replicate those findings, then I would believe it myself that there's a statistically significant effect that you can observe uh, an adverse effect on mortality uh, with the, with the vaccination at least within the, this uh, a risk window of five weeks post post uh, injection. So that's that was my curiosity. Uh, and my my own uh, you know I trust my science more than reading a paper or reading other people uh, re other people's uh, findings. Uh, so so that was what prompted me to to really start digging. So the the aspect. So I contacted him and he was he was very happy to collaborate. So he he helped give me some ideas and and um, we basically um, found a data set that could work uh, from the U.S. CDC site. So the US CDC publishes spreadsheets where they, for every uh, day, actually, they give you the number of vaccine doses that are administered in each state. Um, and then you have a separate spreadsheet that the CDC publishes. In this case, it's just monthly. So they have the monthly uh, all-cause deaths for each state, and they also have the uh, non-COVID and also the COVID deaths. So you can actually separate uh, by the type of um, mortality, non-COVID versus all-cause mortality, as well as a uh, COVID-associated uh, death. So that spreadsheet, those two spreadsheets, is the basic variables that um, that I used in this analysis, and I was able to replicate a similar effect. So if you just look at uh, the number of vaccine doses that are administered in a state across states across 50 states in a particular month they correlate positively with all-cause mortality in the following months so the states that have more doses that are administered tend to have more all-cause mortality the following month 
So that replicated his, his finding uh, that he was observing with the European data. And uh, to take it one step further, because the, the data sets give you real units, so they actually give you the total number of deaths as a real unit and uh, the total number of doses as an actual real unit, you can use um, that relationship that you fit from the linear regression, you can use it to derive a risk estimate, um, which is basically the, the, the model predicted, um, you know, the slope of the line gives you, uh, for, for so many doses that you get on your x-axis, you have this rise over run of a certain amount. Uh, so that rise over run relationship gives you uh, the ability to estimate the risk, mortality risk from a single uh, dose. So that's hopefully I explained um, that in, in a you know uh, I didn't have graphs in front of me, but so that's the basic idea is is um, is uh, you know and then and the rest of the details are um, you know controlling for confounds. How do you control for uh, variation, other state to state variation of mortality? Uh, well, we do that by controlling for 2020 deaths. So for a particular month you add as your baseline the, pre the previous year mortality. And that also controls for population differences that you see across states. Um, and there's, there's other details, uh, but I, I won't go into those details, but the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I remember that when uh, your paper came out and it made a splash, mm -hmm. the commentary was that based on your paper, uh, the number of people who probably died from the COVID injections was somewhere they were quoting like 130,000 to 170,000. Do you generally agree with that number? Uh, for those, that six month period, yes, I haven't, I haven't had a comment that has made me doubt that result from the mm -hmm. paper. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not yet published, but it is a preprint and people are free to comment. Uh, so I've gotten lots of criticisms on the paper and the comment section actually serves as like a pre-publication peer review. Um, so people who know their stuff have actually criticized it and they've, you know, some have brought up some better criticisms than I've gotten from peer review. So it's been through two rounds of peer review, um, the quality of which was, was pretty low, unfortunately. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, I would, as, as right now, I would, I would agree with that assessment based on the analysis um so so yeah that that those results um you know i feel more confident in as they were presented in the paper and that was as the date of the uh, publication for the paper so yeah so the that paper covered the period of from the beginning of the vaccine rollout actually from february it didn't it didn't cover january from february through august that it tabulated based on all of the positive uh for each age group and month, it took all of the significant results where you found a significant positive correlation between vaccination doses and mortality. And it used the fact that you have real units to estimate model predicted deaths. Okay, so for if you have a certain um, increase in doses, how much of a rise do you get in mortality? And then you you use that to calculate your rate, and then you just multiply that by the total number of doses administered um, to estimate a total number of of, um, of deaths. So that so that was how that number those numbers were were derived.
Thank you. And then another question. I remember yeah. that initially when you wrote that paper, you had trouble finding a home for it because, well, for obvious reasons, because yeah. of yeah. the mainstream narrative. Are you still having trouble finding yeah. a home for it? Um, yes, actually. Uh, getting closer, though, uh, I did manage to get it. Uh, initially, it was just getting rejected by the editors. The editors wouldn't even send it out for peer review, um, and they would uh, diplomatically reject it or find some reason. Usually it wasn't a very substantive reason. Um, but the last two, two submissions, um, it was actually sent out for peer review by the last two, two journals. Um, and then the first one, the, the editor who invited the paper actually was not uh, his, uh, I don't know if he had much of a, of a say in whether the paper could get published or not, but I think he, he got pressure to not go through with it. Um, and that, that, that peer review was um, you know one of the one of the reviewers? Yeah, the both reviewers didn't didn't really provide very substantive uh, critiques, and I appealed it, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, and I found another journal where again the editor invited it, but I think um, and then one one reviewer liked it, uh, but didn't say why. He didn't provide the supporting reasons. But then the other two um, didn't like it, and they they. Uh, they criticized it, but they weren't very good criticisms. So one, and then the editor, uh, who they assigned it to a different editor because uh, they were worried of conflicts of interest. So the, the person that I sent it to is actually someone who had published with another investigator that my collaborator had published with. So there's two, three, two degrees of connection. So because of that, they wouldn't send it to the initial editor who wanted to, to look at it and consider it. Um, and he was upset. Um, and um, so someone else looked, someone else took over and, you know, I, I, she wasn't very responsive. And her criticism was, um, well, you can't estimate a risk uh, using this, types, this type of data. You need to have a, a clinical trial or some other type of uh, design. And I responded and I said, well, lots of papers, if you, if you go to uh, PubMed and type in ecological regression and risk estimation, you come up with like 400 different studies where people actually do just what we did in the paper, where you actually uh, relate differences in area level estimates of uh, some type of health outcome with an exposure or some type of environmental exposure and you see whether there's a relationship between that exposure and that health outcome, whether there's an adverse relationship. And often when you do find something, you can then derive some measure of risk, uh, some type of statistic that captures the, the risk or quant tries to quantify it. So I, I responded and I let the editor know that this is, that was basically not a very, you know, uh, rigorous uh, critique. Or very, it wasn't a very substantive uh, critique, and I point and I, you know, cited lots of examples of other papers in different fields that looked at different types of exposures um, and different types of health outcomes, but the methods were similar, very similar. So, so um, I appealed that decision. Unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. I guess the lesson is when people say no the first <laughs> the first time, uh, they're not going to change their mind. Although I did have one time, not this paper. I did have one paper where the editor said no, and I was able to convince the editor to change his mind. So I, that's why I thought it might be worth appealing. Um, but in general, it doesn't work.
Well, I hope you find a home for it. Oh, I mean, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. I in hope so. Climate, I, it's hard, but yeah, yeah. I hope so. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, reasons why editors might be hesitant. They're they're worried about um, some type of. Uh, I think because it's become so politicized, the vac the vaccination program has become so politicized that editors are concerned about um, aligning themselves maybe with the with the with the scientific finding that might tend to be fall on one specific side of the narrative. Um, so I think that's what's going on, unfortunately, um, and they're not really looking at the. Uh, the science. Hopefully, it's. I think it's under review. I have to double check, but it's under review at a journal right now. So hopefully, it'll have some luck there. Well, hopefully, yeah. I would yeah. also like to point out, and I want to emphasize, it's me pointing it out, not you. Mm -hmm. But there is a certain influence of pharmaceutical companies on the journals. So yes, oh, that yes. definitely might be a factor. Yes, definitely, and definitely with the medical journals when I was sending it. They were very dismissive um, and maybe some journals that that there's less as much of a relationship. So I'm hoping that it will have more luck at, at some of these other journals um, that might be a little bit more independent. Um, but you never know. I mean, there's so much, uh, you know, publishers, you have to worry about who owns the journal, who's the publisher and who what potential financial ties do they have um so we'll see we'll see well we'll, we'll yeah. see and i hope yeah. you prevail what Thank about you. your situation at work right now you... oh yeah so so i'm so yeah my university has mandated um three shots so the primary series two doses plus a third booster um and i'm not compliant with their, their mandate and i didn't think it was going to apply to me because i'm 100 percent remote i do my work's uh, completely computational um but uh, one administrator who is above the our department our division administrator who i don't know that well she's she's um, decided to put the brakes on my uh employment until i'm compliant so compliant meaning i can submit an exemption um which I'm in the process of doing that, but I want to find out first whether there's an internal appeal process for the exemption. So if they, will I be able to see the reasons if the exemption is denied and will I have an opportunity to appeal if I don't think the reasons are justified uh, by the committee? So I'm, I'm currently in the process of, of handling the exemption and I'm also uh, attempting to do away with the mandates because um, they, they shouldn't be in place, especially for college students who are at very low risk uh, from the virus. So I'm attacking it at both fronts, both the personal letter. I have a, you know, I have a feeling it'll work out, but I'm still, still in the middle of that. Um, so, so that's actually one of my latest efforts is I sent a very well cited letter um, to the president's office about with four main reasons why they should lift the mandates. Um, and I included 100 citations or more, about, yeah, over 100 citations and footnotes. Um, and uh, fortunately, they, they, did, they did verify receipts. So, so I got a message from the, the executive vice president, and he mentioned, I, I requested that they respond in a timely manner. 
because students have a deadline to file for an exemption for the fall semester. Um, so I was hoping, obviously it's time sensitive. So uh, the sooner they can, they can lift them or put a pause uh, on them and um, you know, the better. You're so brave. So, I, I do oh, admire thanks. your courage so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's so much bravery versus I don't have that at this point, I don't have that much to lose. Um, so I might as well, it's the only thing I've got, you know, it's the only path that I see that I, I can, I can, I can pursue at this point. So I don't know if I'm that brave. Um, I would, I would just say that I'm situated in, in a point where, um, I feel like I have to, I have to, uh, speak up uh, to the best of my ability. Um, so well, yeah, I don't see any other option. <laughs> thank you. Do you but, want yeah. to show the letter? Do you sure. want to show, yeah. screen yeah. show the letter? I would love to. Yeah. 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 So the idea is this is, this is a letter that anybody can send to their university if they're still mandating, uh, the primary series and, or possibly thinking about mandating a fourth booster. Um, so the idea is that, um, people can, can get this link to a Google document. They can make a copy and then they can just fill in, uh, the two, the address. And then they can feel free to change or modify the letter. Uh, but the only two things they have to modify is the, is the two address. And then, uh, when they expect to have a response, when they would like to have a response. Um, and I'm working on this with my colleague, Kevin Berry, who's an attorney. Um, so yeah, so, so if they, they can fill in those two um, blanks then, and they can add their signature here, they can add their signature here or here as like a cosigner under here. Um, Technically, the letter can apply to any college or university president. Uh, we tried to word it so that it basically can be addressed to any university president. Um, and so basically, it basically, uh, the main purpose of the letter is to notify colleges and universities of the unfavorable risk benefit for the vaccines. Uh, especially for younger adults who are the majority facing such mandates who are, you know, colleges and universities. Um, so this lets them know that given, especially for this age group, given how low risk the virus is, um, the, the vaccines are considerably riskier, even though the overall risk of both is, is, is low in absolute terms. If you compare the numbers, the risk of the jab is is um, is higher, uh, I would argue, and so I lay out a lot of the evidence for that. Um, and the other the other purpose, the the other purpose of the letter is to let these universities know that they shouldn't just trust these public health agencies uh, regarding the risk benefit of the vaccines. Um, and so, letting them know about the recent um, lawsuit um, by Siri and Glimstad, uh, they sued the FDA so that they could release the documents um, which they relied on to approve the Pfizer vaccine. Um, 
And so those documents, so we, the letter cites those documents um, and the fact that the FDA had to be sued to release them, uh, which, which suggests that they're not being transparent like they promised they were. So the idea is that um, to notify the universities, they should not be uh, making their decisions just because the public health agencies are saying one thing. They should be looking at a different, an alternative set, global data. Um, so this this letter goes on to basically cite 175 different studies. Uh, but the main, yeah, the main idea here is here we cite a recent study from uh, England, um, which showed they analyzed 40 million health, health records and they basically quantify the relative risk of myocarditis um, for each of the Pfizer doses and the Moderna doses relative to the risk of myocarditis after infection. And they find that with the second and third dose of Pfizer and with the, the first and both doses of the Moderna vaccine, the risks are higher uh, in males uh, under younger than 40. So, so this is sort of the main point is that young adults, in this case, um, it's focusing on myocarditis risk in young men. Um, in this case, there should be no justification for a mandate, um, a university-wide uh, mandate. So the four, the four areas that the, the, the letter elaborates on, the most important reason to lift them is this unfavorable risk benefit. So that's the section A. Um, and then it also, section B, it goes on to state how this has become more common knowledge that the, the vaccines don't prevent transmission or spread. Um, and also C, that uh, the vaccination is not necessary in people who have a previous coronavirus infection due to their infection-derived immunity. Um, and also on top of that, a number of studies have shown almost twice as twofold increase in risk for adverse events if you're vaccinated and you've had a previous infection. And then section D here is uh, further, further sort of driving home the point why uh, universities shouldn't rely on certain claims or uh, sources. So that's it. So that's the main yeah, and then there's four four different types of uh, mandates or demands um, that the letter makes um, as remediation for these for these um, for these policies, and the, the most important one is to is to lift to lift the mandates. Um, well, once again, I applaud yeah. you for your effort. Yeah. This is tremendous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, I wanted to get more mileage <laughs> mileage out of it. Um, so I sent it to my university, and I thought this could be useful for other people too. Um, and so that's why I wanted. Well, Kevin actually, Kevin Barry suggested uh, creating like a generic version that other people can 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 use as well. Um, so the idea is that people can print this out and send it via certified mail. So sending it via certified mail is good because then you can get proof that the university has received it. So then if, if someday there's ever a situation where there's a court um, action that involves that university, you can prove, okay, we notified the university of these potential, potential risks 
um, and yet they still proceeded with their mandate. Um, so that's the that's the recommendation is to print this out, send it send it via certified mail. Um, the problem was when I was emailing people, I didn't always get a response because people don't always check their email. Um, so by sending an actual paper copy with a certified mail uh, signature requirement, you're more likely to get, I think, um, an actual response. Yeah, thank you. That, that's well, a wonderful yeah, recommendation. Yeah. And well, a question. So is the situation yes. at your work humanly? Do you feel like you're getting support or, or do you feel like it's, you know, 50-50 or more criticism? Oh, yeah. You know, I haven't yet. Um, that's what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to collect more signatures. Uh, but so far, I've gotten a few signatures. Um, and I, I have gotten some people... Some people who are, you know, hold high positions who agree, may agree privately, but for whatever reason, they decline to put their name on the letter. Uh, but other people who do hold high positions and have expertise, uh, you know, have, have agreed to include their, their public signature because they agree and they, and they, um, they want to see some changes in policy. So, I would oh, say this is wonderful. Oh, can you unshare yeah. unshare the screen? So sure. That, yeah. You want me yeah. to stop the share? Yeah. Yeah. Thank so, you. So, yeah. So, um, you know, my next step is uh, collecting more signatures, which I haven't done yet with this, um, but I'm going to um, email it, send a short email with the sort of the short synopsis. Okay. If you agree, you want to make sure that the university doesn't implement a fourth booster mandate. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, please sign, please sign this letter about all the reasons why they shouldn't, um, and moreover why they should lift the mandate on the primary series, uh, why they should lift that. So uh, my plan is to send that, and then also link this document to a petition form. Use Google Forms, where if people want to sign it, they can click on the link and then use Google Forms to add their name, their department, uh, their affiliation. Um, and then and then create like a longer list of of signers so we'll see we'll see how many people um sign but i, I imagine it's going to be a certain percentage of people who may agree but aren't well for one reason or another just don't want to stick their necks out um so we'll see yeah that's that's yet to be to be seen but yeah oh. so far i i have gotten um support uh i've gotten some pushback um but over time i think i think people soften up on the pushback at least with the colleagues that i've been speaking with um so i think i think um you know there's there's lots of facts and evidence here that's cited so um oh i'm not sharing my screen but yeah i was just Gonna show all the references, but um, oh, please, please do, please <laughs> oh, do. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I was just, um, yeah. So, so that's the the idea that I wanted to do with this letter. I've seen other letters, um, similar letters, but they didn't have all of the um, sort of supporting cita uh, documents. And I did, I did actually, um, you know, I was inspired by some other lawsuits that have been, you know, there's lawsuits again against the California UC. Uh, university system so i did read that and that helped me 
Um, and I tried to build a, a, a I tried to add uh, new data um, that wasn't cited in that um, that document. So um, yeah, and then the idea is to make this a living document too. So the printed copy has a barcode and a, a small URL to the online version. So I invite them to, when I send it to the president's office, I say, this is a living document. We'll be collecting more signatures. We'll be adding more references. Please check back for the updated version of the document um, over time. So that way, uh, you know, the, the document can be edited and improved upon. Oh, wonderful. You are yeah. doing such tremendous yeah. public service. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, part of it's to get my job <laughs> and my job back too. So I can't be totally, uh, um, but yeah, th this is, this is not just to get my job back. I mean, yeah, I think, I think the mandates don't serve anyone at this point. So I think, um, you know, there's other efforts out there. And, and so I'm hoping to contribute my small part to that, to that effort. Uh, so yeah, if any of your viewers are watching, uh, please, uh, feel free to, to use this, um, letter and, uh, mail it to your university or college. And, um, you know, maybe you can ask for feedback if people actually do it and we can get a sense of, of whether, um, people find it helpful or not. Well, yeah, I, I was surprised. I was happy that I did get a, a response from my university. So they did actually acknowledge it. And I, and I think in, in his own way, he, he thanked me for the analysis and he said, well, I'll bring it to the attention of the other experts who are, who are responsible for, uh, making the policy decisions. But he, he basically said, yeah, we've been thinking about these issues as well. Um, so, but I'll, I'll bring this to their attention. This is amazing yeah, because there's yeah. so much pressure from whoever it is, whether it's the pharmaceutical investors mm -hmm. or whoever that is, the mystery people. But there's so much pressure from everybody to not stick their neck out. I think part of it too is, you know, in the beginning, people had good intentions and they, and they thought that was the right thing. Uh, and they thought that, um, you know, this was, there, was a, there was a delay actually when before a lot of this data was available to people. And um, a lot of these mandates were announced before that data was out. So I think in addition, I think there's a pressure also that um, there's a psychology of not wanting to sort of reverse course or, or sort of uh, do something, I guess they're, even in, even if they agree, okay, yeah, well, they should be lifted, but we can't. We have to do them in the right way, or we have to do them in some way that uh, makes uh, you know the university not. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what 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 they're thinking, um, but there could be. Yeah, there could be financial conflicts of interest. There could be other factors that are involved. Uh, it could be all of the investments that they made in the digital passports. So colleges. My university and I imagine other colleges have invested in this whole digital passport where you can only access campus if, you've, if you're up to date on your uh, vaccines. Um, so I imagine that was a big investment. So there's maybe uh, this idea of sunken costs. People say, okay, we don't wanna abandon that investment. Um, so yeah, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of factors at play. Um, 
but yeah, I'm going to try to work within the system <laughs> to make, to make change. Uh, and we'll see, we'll see how that works. Well, thank you. And, yeah. uh, I have a question that yes. might be a side story to what you are doing, because for instance, when I have this conversation with some of the people who are maybe on the fence or maybe more mainstream minded to this day, the argument is that, well, how can those uh, vaccines be so dangerous if I don't personally know anybody who dropped dead? So what is kind of the word in the street in the, at your university? Uh, are there rumors? Are there cases where somebody suffered, or students, or faculty, or anybody? Yeah, so, um, so, so a few people reached out to me from Columbia, from my university, um, after they saw my paper. So we have a sort of a small group and, uh, they relayed that, yeah, there are some, some, uh, nobody dropped dead, fortunately, but there were some side effects, uh, like someone I think grew, a, a, a large cyst or tumor, um, on, in the lymph node. Um, but apparently she was still going to get her second dose or, um, so there was a type of psychology, I think, where people, people view it as, um, they, they still, I guess, see that the benefits outweigh the risks, even if they have some severe side effect. Um, so yeah, the word on the street is, uh, the, at least that in New York, um, there are some, um, side effects that people have had. Um, I would say that it's, there's a culture of not really talking about it or really, um, really discussing whether persons, a person's health issues might be related to the vaccine. I think that's considered taboo. And it's also maybe, I think it violates HIPAA if you ask about it. Um, so I think maybe because of the hesitance to discuss um, potential Yeah, there might be a hesitance to discuss it. So it might be more prevalent. You know, these these issues that go on might be more prevalent or probably more prevalent than people realize. It's just people are not uh, comfortable discussing them because uh, oftentimes people get, when people share their, if they are vaccine injured and they share it, they often get a, a violent response or a negative uh, response. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, so at, well, at least with, with one, one professor that I shared the paper with, he said he didn't know anybody that had a severe reaction, but he did know someone who got COVID like three days after the vaccine. Um, and the way he said it was like, yeah, he kind of started doubting, um, you know, how, how useful or helpful it was uh, given that, that story of someone he knew who got COVID like a few days after. So yeah, not everybody's going to know someone who died from the from the injection, um, but I think enough people will have stories about uh, side effects, debilitating side effects. I think everybody knows at least one person, either on social media, that, that had some side effect. Um, so, so yeah, so that's that's, um, and there could also potentially be regional differences. It could be because of the way that the vaccines were distributed. It could be that some regions tend to have more. Uh, more adverse events than others. 
which is a possibility. So it could be that there's, um, you know, if New York is a major hub and it's closer to places that manufacture the vaccine or for whatever other reason, um, maybe there's a, there's a lower rate of adverse events. Um, so yeah, that, that still needs to be worked out whether there are batch effects, whether there's such a thing as bad batches and whether those bad batches were, were distributed. Um, some people don't think that, that there is really uh, evidence for bad batches, meaning that certain lot numbers of the vaccines account for all of the adverse events. But I've seen analyses that do suggest that there's certain batches that that are much worse than others, like a small percentage. So that so there's could be lots of factors that could explain why, depending on where you live, maybe you're more surrounded, you're more likely or less likely to know someone personally who's who's had an event. Um, yeah, I saw a lot of analysis regarding batch numbers and it does look like yeah. uh, that some batches were significantly worse than others and based on the distribution it's possible that some people would know nobody and some people would know a few people. So, but, but once again, I, your work is so, so important. I just want to thank you again for doing that. Thank you. It was a pleasure to 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 meet you and and join you i have more time but yeah thank you and thank you for having me having me on um oh, and the work that you're doing is very important yes and, uh, so yeah. if people want to reach out to you about this letter or any about oh. your work what is a good way to contact you yeah so the letter um the letter has my email email address um so i can i can leave it with with you as well. So you can put it on the, the podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, yeah, Twitter, email. Those are the main two ways or through the Google document too. People can leave comments on the, on the Google document. And, um, yeah, the Google document also has my email. So if there's any questions about the letter, um, or, or edits or suggested edits, you can leave it on the Google Doc or email email me. Well, thank you. And so, once yeah. again, thank you for thank you. being a guest on the podcast and thank you for your work. Thank you. And it's wonderful to meet you. Oh, absolutely. You. Hope, hopefully the truth Likewise. wins in the end, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, I think it will. Just take some time. Cool. Thank you. All right. Okay.